Hello, and welcome to New Matter. I'm Mike Tarselli, and I'm the scientific director for SLAS. Joining me today is an esteemed guest, our SLAS board president and pharmaceutical executive, Mr. Emilio Diaz Molinero. How are you, Emilio? I'm fine, Mike. Nice to be here with you today. I'm happy that you invited me to this podcast that I'm becoming popular among our community. That's great. At least that's our hope long term. How long, Emilio, have you been involved with SLES and its precursor organizations? Well, Mike, I, I joined SBS, the Society for Biomolecular Screening. That was one of the two societies that later, you know, merged to create SLES as we know it today. This happened about the time that SBS was founded back in 1994. I remember attending the first face-to-face meeting in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, and during all these years, I've served as a volunteer in many different roles. I have been presenting at workshops, at conferences. I've been session chair, conference chairs throughout the years in different, in different places. And I also served on the SBS, the former SBS board of directors, a few years before the merger with ALA. And since the merger, I, I've been very active in bringing Europe back in, in full speed to SLES. Europe was a bit disconnected uh, at the end of the 90s. And as a member of the of the SLS European Council and then chairman of that council, I helped to really set up the infrastructure and the and the society so Europe was a full part of it. Now, as you mentioned, I am a board member and the president for this year. I have to say it has been a long run, many, many years, which I have enjoyed very much. That's great. And 26 years of professional experience. I mean, you're not necessarily that old yet. So I'm assuming that this played a formative role in your career development as you went through. Yeah, it did. I mean, it helped me to, especially in the second part of my career when I joined industry, that was in the 90s, or the 80s, I'm sorry. Uh, SLES was a place where I, I did a lot of network and I learned how to do things I didn't know before in that discovery and technology and automation, etc. So it was great to, to be part of this society. So in today's day and age, what is it that you do all day? Can you describe what you do as, I believe, a pharmaceutical consultant in your day-to-day business? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I help transitioning academic research into products of value to society. That's kind of what I do. And this is a broad thing to, to say, you know. My days now, as you can imagine, are, and for the last three, four years since I left uh, GSK, are very different from what I did in the previous almost 30 years when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. Like many of us in the drug discovery business, I, I have experience in the transition of the industry from a very heavy internal R&D engine that the big farmers have in the, in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s, to a model where externalization of many, and I will say of most of the R&D activities, are externalizing, and this is the norm. This transition has happened at the time that uh, academic research has a lot of pressure to really become more productive in delivering products for society. Of course. So, within this scenario, I thought when I left the industry, the pharma industry, the big pharma, but I could play a role uh, and in, the last, in this, new, this new world. And in the last few years, I have been involved in a number of initiatives focused on facilitating the transition of academic research into projects that could be of interest for investors. And mostly I have done this work in, in Spain, where I, where I am from and where I live now, and I focus on this uh, ecosystem. Got it. What would you say are the most uh, difficult challenges with this new role, since you referred to it as, I guess this would be the third phase of your career now. What's the biggest challenge here? Well, I think uh, you have to appreciate this is Spain. And in Spain, there is great science. I mean, it's first quality science. But we do have a very bad um, history and still uh, a bad situation with the high capital risk and investors for, for early, early discovery. 
So the most difficult thing is always to find the money to get things done, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> that is improving. That, that it's not that it's different to, in other places, but the amount of money available for investing in research initiatives coming out of universities and public centers is finding these people that really believe on the, on the science and want to invest with high risk. Would you say that now that you're in this business full time, that you're seeing more domestic venture capital and capital risk being taken in Spain or in Europe largely, or are you still seeing more international backers enter this early stage pharma space? Yes, yeah, I think I think the international is as it is, and, uh, and, and in Europe there is a, a characteristic which I'm not sure if it compares to the US, but in Europe there are specific funds funds from the European Community to do this transition, but they are not sufficient. So they are they cover part of the process. So uh, we are seeing now more and more uh, what you call domestic funds, usually family, family offices and small investment funds that are dedicated to this, but it's not sufficient yet. So we are, my, my role now, and what I, I'm starting a new venture in September. I'm still doing other things, but I'm starting with <laughs> Congratulations. A new venture that is going to be about trying to to help to create some, what I would call, therapeutic area-focused uh, funds, not very big, but sufficient to do the, the key, basically the key experiments in a particular project to make it you know, marketable and people want to invest on it. So it's a new thought. I want to combine the, the public European funds with, with uh, small private investors. That's what we're going to do. And this will be a focus on our specific therapeutic areas, mainly rare diseases and and, you know, uh, infectious, uh, emerging infectious diseases. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And to level set with everyone who's listening to this in the future, we are in the yeah. midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as it is July yeah. 2020 upon this recording. Gotcha. So tell me about how uh, COVID-19 has impacted you either personally or professionally. What do you see as SLAS's response to this pandemic? Well, I think that uh, personally, uh, it affected me like uh, everyone else. You know, I, like everyone else, I have experienced the lockdown and the slowdown of activities. But in terms of work, personally, I haven't been involved until now in, in COVID-19, you know, related projects. Because I, mean, I don't have anything on my, on my pot at the moment for that. Gotcha. With regard to SLES, I think SLES has, has done quite a, lo- a lot in in trying to, to help to understand the people, you know, in our association, in our members and beyond our members, to understand what was going on, because there were a lot of news on their papers and a lot of sometimes missed messages and confusion with politicians saying one thing and scientists saying another thing. So I think with honestly, what we have done is just to, I think, you play a big part of that, is trying to clarify some of those concepts. And I think that was great. Also, in putting together some papers and some special issues on, on the topic, I think that's, that's great as well. Of course, this is really the core area where SLAS plays, right? This is assay creation, diagnostics, mm-hmm. distribution, supply chain. These are all things we know how to do. Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. All right. Tell me about the most exciting lab moment or professional moment of your entire career. What do you remember the most? Well, uh, that is a difficult one, Mike. Uh, I think there have been many. Uh, it's, a long, it's a long life. Top, top <laughs> three. <laughs> no, I, let me do, let you, I don't choose a couple of them. If, if I think in a scientific personal accomplishments, I would have to go back to my days in academia, early late 80s, right? Uh, at that time, I was working in the lipid metabolizing enzymes, mm-hmm. and I was trying to understand how these proteins interacted with their ligands in the lipid bilayers. 
And this is uh, for the new generations, perhaps they don't know that at that time we didn't have uh, fluorescent technology, we have very few labels, we have to use other technologies. And <laughs> no cryo-EM, you couldn't just freeze it out and look. <laughs> yeah, so using technologies that today are kind of obsolete, such as subcellular fractionation and differential centrifugation, I managed at the time to demonstrate uh, the translocation of some important enzymes involved in lipid metabolism, you know, like translocation from organisms between organisms. I remember, that's what you are seeing here, remember, I remember that day late at night, I was involved in Philadelphia at the time, in the lab, where I could finally say, like, my God, this is it, I got it. Wow. And I found that, uh, that a chionic acid specific phospholipase 2 translocated from the cytosol to the membrane upon central stimulus. So this today could be demonstrated rather simply, as I simply, you know, using fluorescent labels and techniques such as phosphatometry and cellular imaging. But None of those techniques existed at the time. So if I have to think back, this is probably one of the best moments in my scientific career when I was working in that. <laughs> and, and that's amazing. It hasn't even been that long, Emilio. I mean, gosh, only 30 years, and now all this yeah, technology yeah. exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. Then if I think in my years in industry, uh, and this is perhaps more related to SLAS, I am, I, I was, and I am very proud in, uh, that in the early 2000s, uh, I participated in the design and construction, and then I had the honor to manage what we call at the time a drug discovery factory at GSK in Spain. This was a, a large investment, uh, you know, several tens of millions of dollars or euros were invested in automation, in compound management, and high good screening. It resulted in a factory-style research laboratory. Uh, we had all the components that you could see or you could imagine in a traditional factory, such as online quality control, factory physics. And we had scientists and engineers on the floor all the time. We work on shift. We, we enabled the performance of hundreds of thousands of screen assets per day in several targets. That was a, a, a change in a couple of orders of magnitude or three orders of magnitude from what we were doing at the time. Needless to say, that in building that facility and everything around it, it took us a couple of years to understand the building, to all the, put all the instrumentation in place, etc. I did collaborate with many companies that I get to know well at the SLES events. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why I referred in the past that you know, SLES really helped me quite a lot. <laughs> That's great. And, and actually, I'm curious to restate something that you had said in there. You said you worked in shifts and that the whole place was a, a factory that it sort of never stopped running. So tell me a little bit more about that because I think a lot of people are accustomed to standard research lab, right? You go in seven or eight in the morning, you come out six at night, but they aren't accustomed to things that run 24 hours. Tell me about what it's like to run something that's always on. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a challenge, I have to say. You know, I ran a, a, a facility previous to this change and I have mainly scientists, biologists, chemists, pharmacists, you know, people that were scientists in the lab. You, the, the standard people you will know, you are a chemist or a biologist working in a laboratory. And in order to do this transition, we need to hire engineers and, and IT people that were processing the data quickly and people with experience in quality control, et cetera, et cetera. I have to say, it's not that we were running all time 24 by 7, but there were periods, especially, you know, do you remember the GSK was the result of the merger of Smith and Bichaman mm -hmm. and Laxo Weldon? So for three, four years after the merger, we were screening every single compound against every other target that we had from the other company. Oh, so man. for a period of time, we were screening globally, not just in Spain, but at a global level, we were screening more than 100 targets every year against two, three million compounds. Wow. Okay, so that was crazy. And at that time, we really need to work sometimes on 24 by 7. So what was different? 
the more challenging thing and the most difficult was to get scientists accustomed to really work in that mode. So we have to separate somehow the factory activities from the research activities. So people developing assets, they follow one, one way of working and people in the factory, they, they were working in a different, different mode. And, you know, uh, reacting to when you run assays at that speed, you know, hundreds of thousands of assays per day, all of a sudden your reagents start going bad and then you, you see that trend in your quality control, you have to stop the machine, you have to restart. And you have, you have to say something, don't think that machinery stay working all the time. Not in this, a factory like this, not in a factory of any type. Things break down and you need to be there to fix it quickly and be prepared to repair things as quickly as possible so you can continue. So that was a real challenge. <laughs> and it's such a different challenge that most scientists don't get to encounter usually in their lives, right? Because usually your lab is a sort of self-contained apparatus where you know what your reagents are, you know what your experiments are, and you don't expect it to go into the hundreds of thousands or millions of runs or doses or whatnot. So yeah, it's something I've not yet encountered in my career of having to stop a process line. <laughs> Yeah, now we call this, I mean, it was uh, GSK, we call it Lab Discovery Factory. And in fact, we have a couple of papers describing that at the time. I don't know if it was the first, obviously, every company has their own stories. But at the time, we really, I think we built something that was kind of leading what others did after that. And, you know, it was another thing that is interesting is we were in Spain. GSK is a large organization that operates in all the continents. And we, have re- we had at the time research in all the continents as well. And so uh, while the factory people were working in this uh, factory environment, the scientists, they had to interact with people all over the world. So our afternoons, early morning in the U.S. or late in China or in Asia, you know, our scientists were designing the assets and looking at the data. They have meetings uh, all the time with people all around the world. And that was a challenge as well because this was a, a real transnational effort. <laughs> That's really amazing. And that's something that leads into my last question, which is, if you look into a crystal ball, Emilio, as the president of SLAS and as a person who's had all this transnational expertise, both in industry and academia, what do you see changing for our community over the next five to 10 years? What's the biggest thing people don't see coming that is going to become part of normal life in just about five years? Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the crystal ball, but I, as I said before, I mean, the, the working model big companies uh, that they do, the, they used to do the, the R&D internally, has finished. And the work has become much more integrated, much more collaborative, and that obviously will continue. Uh, and it will have an impact on our members. I mean, people is changing jobs because the jobs are disappearing from the pharma, for example, and they're opening up in academia, etc., etc. So I think we need to make sure that SLES continues with the role that it has as the main forum where science and technology meet, helping to promote the advancements of knowledge and the development of solutions for research. I think SLES is about that. It's about helping people to embrace new challenges that are sometimes related to, to new technologies, sometimes related to something else. So I, I, believe, I believe that SLES should continue with the trend to be attractive not only to the companies in, in the space, but it's important to be attractive, an attractive forum for academics and startup companies. I think if I will have to say, I guess if that our members will be spread more evenly between academics, startups, and big companies. Also, I think with, with current communication technologies, with all this digital revolution, the 5G coming in, et cetera, et cetera, I think we do have the opportunity to expand the geographical footprint and reach out to the world. I would like to think that 
that SLES continues with uh, flagship events, uh, the big international meeting in the US or the European conference, or this small, you know, focus symposia that we organize around the, around the world, usually mainly in the US and Europe, but uh, once we control COVID-19, obviously. And then, you know, had a plethora, I, I, will, I would like to see that SLES only had a plethora of, uh, of digital activities and virtual event that can be attended by anyone in the world. That would be a way to reach globally without having to be in all places at the same time. That's a really great vision, and I like that. Um, and I enjoy the fact that that ties in neatly to what you see in the industrial model changing as well. So yeah. to get somebody in, to get in a younger generation, to get in somebody who's maybe a first or second year graduate student today, what should they be studying, learning, doing in order to have an impact in our field? Well, I think they have to be very open to uh, a graduate in second year. I wouldn't tell him you know what to study. They study what they want. Mm-hmm. But I think what is important is that once they get into the, the marketplace, they don't become complacent with themselves. They don't you know, stick to a particular area that they like and they study. I think if you want to, to really participate in new scientific discoveries and technologies, and technologies uh, this is always evolving. And you know, I think we all agree that this is evolving now faster than ever before. So if you, want to succeed, if you want to succeed in your career, you need to continuously learn. You have to be open to learn all the time and stay informed of later developments, either by reading papers, by reading books, by reading whatever, but also attending events and having a great network. And for that matter, SLES is a great place to be. I think I would also advise people to continue expanding, as I said, the network. Just make sure that you keep meeting people when you go to to meetings and and to workshops, etc. Don't be afraid of asking questions. Um, No matter how silly they look to you, if you have a question, many of the people might have the same question and nobody is brave enough to ask for it. And then I think you have to be in this new environment. You have to be really bold in your thoughts, really open-minded and really to go into any direction, basically. That's great. So thank you for that concise vision of the future and how to inspire anybody who's thinking about coming into this space. Any final thoughts, whether about SLAS or about your career or just generally? I, I, since we are in the, in the thing of COVID-19, I would like to say just a few words on that because I, I think this is very important. So, virologists, I remember when the SARS outbreak, about two decades ago now, basically, I remember attending some workshops on, on SARS and, uh, and you know, I, I remember at the time virologists and epidemiologists really around the world, you know, warning that a pandemic will arrive at a certain point in time. It was mm-hmm. all based in looking at the, the, structure, the structure of the viruses and how they mutate and how they become infective of humans when they move, etc., etc. So it was not just because they think, they thought so. It was based on, you know, on on genetic uh, structures and you know, genetic sequences, and such So they, they warned our society that a pandemic will arrive. It wasn't a matter of whether it will happen or not. The question that it was when happens. And so what has happened is that it arrived and it has caught up really by surprise and underprepared, really unprepared. So the takeaway, and you know, what I would like to say is that politicians and society in general should listen and take seriously what the scientific community has to say. It is not always the case. In fact, it rarely happens, as you see our, our politicians, for example. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and especially mine, as I'm based in the US. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and my, my, my final words, I would like just to say that SLES and the former SLES and ALA really helped me a lot in my career. 
Uh, I think it is a great place for working on a state unit in data developments in our fields. And I hope being a member of SLES is as useful to our, our members as it has been for me. And, you know, good luck to everyone and stay safe. Thank you very much, uh, esteemed guest, board member, president, and Dr. Emilio Diaz-Monadero. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike.